Thank you, Buzz. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of uh, this book that uh, you breathed out through your apostle, Paul, to your servant, Timothy, and likewise to us so many years later, we pray that you would strengthen us uh, to implement the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have found in this letter. I pray that you would bless us as we endeavor to be faithful to you. And Lord, as we take a look at these very personal uh, final statements of the Apostle Paul, his last written words before giving his life as a witness in martyrdom uh, for the sake of Christ Jesus and his gospel, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us a special blessing. Help us to stand together as one church under Christ. Help us to work together strategically and in love for the sake of your gospel. And Lord, let us always, day by day, season by season, remember our need for grace. I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've done it. We've come to the end of 2 Timothy, which brings us to the close of, I don't know, almost six months of preaching through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So I thought to end things today, what I would do is not give a three-point sermon, but give you an 11-point sermon. Uh, Don't worry, though. Each point is only going to take about 10 or 20 minutes, uh, which means I should get you home by dinner. Uh, It won't be that long. There's a joke. You know, we can laugh at church too. Uh, A couple minutes for each. And and what we're going to do at the end of taking a look at 11 observations from this text is we're going to draw all these observations together and see one final instruction that the Lord has given us through the Apostle Paul for how he wants us to behave in the household of God. That's what this has been all about. It's, it's been about us asking God to show us what do you want us to do? How do you want us to behave? Because we cannot expect that we would naturally know how we are supposed to behave in the household of God. And if there's any question about this, just look around ju- this city, look around the country, look across the West, look across the world, and not every church would say that they are doing the same things as the other churches. Like, but, but we should all, in great diversity of local church, as God has called us, see great unity in what we're trying to achieve. And so our goal at South Shore is not to worry about what we think we might want to do as a church, but to begin by saying, what God do you want from us? Because we are your church. And so we've seen 22 instructions, and we're going to have the 22nd instruction given to us this morning. Now, these verses, starting in verse 9 through to the end of the book in chapter 4, are easy verses to skip over. If you've ever done your Bible reading in a year, or let's say you just are cruising through the New Testament, and you get to verse 9, you're like, okay, this is all personal stuff that has nothing to do with me, and so we're just going to quickly read it so I can say that I've read it, but really there's no, no no learning for me. There's nothing that can be applied to me. There's nothing that God wants to instruct me from these verses. And uh, I have to admit, I've been in that place myself. 
It took me a long time before I ever realized that there was anything of value in Romans 16, for example, uh, for my life in ministry, but there is. Similarly here, and in fact, as I was digging into it, uh, like I said, I, we have 11 observations. This could, have, this could have been a sermon series in and of itself. There's so much here that's instructive for us in the household of God. But we will pull it together into one instruction, which I'll tell you at the end. Now, there's a couple of ways that we could go about doing this. As I've already said, we're going to look at 11 observations and then pull it together. But I don't want us to miss the macro structure. So I'm just going to point it out for you, and then we'll get into the 11 in, uh, observations. So, so the macro structure of this final preaching text in 2 Timothy flows like this. From verses 9 through 13, Paul is making a personal appeal to Timothy. He's saying, come to me. And then he's filling in his circumstances and what's happening to himself relationally that would help Timothy to understand why it is that Paul wants him to make the trip from Ephesus to Rome. And then in verses 14 through 18, it becomes even more clear, everyone has deserted me. We're going to talk a little bit more. This is one of the observations. The Apostle Paul was a champion for the gospel. And I think it's easy to, f to forget that he had a tough life. Not just from outside the church, but inside the church. And, and just as this letter began, Timothy, keep going. I know that you're going through rough waters in your local church right now. You've got to keep going. Everyone in Asia, and Ephesus was one of those cities in Asia, has deserted me. So he ends his letter. And how sad, how tragic, right? Because these are the last written words of Paul before Rome takes off his head. And near the end of his life, the last words that he writes is, Timothy, everyone's left me. I'm alone. Come to me. Then we get to verses 19 through 21, where Paul says, I want you to greet these people. Paul probably knowing this is his last correspondence, his last opportunity to greet people. Uh, and he, he wants Timothy to receive greetings. There are some people here who want to greet you, Timothy, which shows you that Paul wasn't completely alone, though at his trial he had been alone. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then in verse 22, which caps off the ministry of Paul with such clarity. And I'm just going to read it now, even though we'll get to it again later on. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. Is there, is there a greater final statement for the Apostle Paul than that? He was the Apostle, perhaps more explicitly than any others. I don't want to say more than any of the others, but perhaps more explicitly than any other Bible writer who, who emphasized the need for grace. I'm the worst of all sinners, but the love and grace of the Lord overflowed for me as an example to all who have put their faith in Christ and believe. Like, Paul knows personally how much he needs grace. Paul knows personally how much Timothy needs grace. And Paul preached grace from beginning to end. It's all about grace, 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 grace. To the point where people were, were slandering him and saying, Paul is giving us permission to go out and sin. And in Romans, he says, that's not what I'm saying. But grace. And that's how... Paul's ministry of letter writing ends. Grace be with you. Let's take a look then at 11 observations from this macro structure, and then we'll be bouncing around a little bit. 
Observation number one. Before Paul died, he really, really, really wanted to see Timothy one more time. We see that because he mentions it three times in these closing verses. Take a look at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Whatever you have to do, move heaven and earth, Timothy. I, I need to see you. You remember at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, oh, I wish I was with you. Then you would fill me with joy. I would, I would reassure you. I would comfort you. And then at the end of the letter, he says, oh, you know what, Timothy? I need you. Just as you need me, I need you. And then we go to verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Come to me. When you come, bring my coat, because it's winter here, it's getting cold. I'm down in a dungeon, shackled with cold iron to, to, uh, to a stone wall. I could really use my coat. Bring the books and the parchments. We'll talk about that. That's an observation. And then we get to verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. I mean, probably you put the two together. He wants to see him. It's cold. He needs his cloak. But more than that, what we talked about last week, he is already preparing himself to be poured out as a drink offering. He doesn't even know how much longer he has. He knows that his impending martyrdom is coming. Could come at any moment. Do your best, Timothy, to come to me soon. Take-home point from this observation. The Christian life is not just about theology and doctrine and being right or being wrong. The Christian life is not a philosophy that is abstractable. It's not a bunch of ideas that if you read and intellectually assent to those ideas, that everything is good and right in your life. The Christian walk and life in the church, remember the, the, these books are all about life in the church, is about forging deep, meaningful, eternal relationships. And we live in a fallen world where there's going to be pressures constantly trying to rip these relationships apart. And may it never be that our goal is just to be right. Because at the end of the day, when we, like Paul, see our death on the immediate horizon, being right, winning the argument, winning the debate will matter very little. Now, it will matter. I'm not saying that we throw doctrine away, but not at the expense of deep relationships. And so every one of us needs to take care to find opportunities to forge deep relationships, to protect those relationships, and to go deeper. And it's not going to be easy. I know that it's not easy. It's not easy in the local church. It's not easy in our families. But let us commit to working with every fiber that we have to preserve the gift of love that God has given to us. 
It's observation number one. Observation number two is related. Before he died, Paul really, really wanted to reconcile with Mark. This is if he hadn't already. We don't really know. We know from Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, just jot that down. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. But Paul and Mark had a disagreement in ministry, and so they parted ways. We never hear about reconciliation, though Mark is mentioned in Philemon, verse 24, and in Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10. So, so we're not entirely sure, but the way this is written shows us that there is an enduring desire for reconciliation in the sunset of his life. Take a look at uh, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is very useful to me for ministry. And, and I read that in, in concert with Acts uh, chapter 15, 36 to 41. And the whole point was, Paul in Acts 15 said, Mark, you're not useful to me in ministry right now. You're not coming with us. And now at the end of his life, he says, Timothy, I want you to get Mark. I want you to bring him to me. I, I don't, I, the text doesn't say where Mark was at this point, but it was up to, to Timothy to find Mark and bring him to Paul. Now, in case we forget about this, travel in the ancient world was not easy. It's not like you get into your, in, into your BMW or you, you rent a, a, a bus or you fly in an airplane. It was laborsome to get from point A to point B. And we don't know where Mark was, but Paul says, this is really important to me that you get him. And when you go to him to say that Paul wants to see you, I want you to tell him that he is useful to me for ministry. What's the take-home point here? Conflict in ministry, conflict in the church is inevitable. We're going to hurt one another. Let's just acknowledge that as fact. Paul and Mark, two men through whom God wrote Holy Scripture, were in conflict with one another. They had to part ways. Paul, though, says that's not ideal. That's not the Christian life. That's not what we're hoping for. I want you to get Mark and bring him to me so we can reconcile. Conflict in ministry, conflict in the local church is inevitable. Oh, but reconciliation is precious. It, it's so important. So let's just all pause for a moment and think of strained relationships that we have. What do, so far as it matters to me and to you, what do, what do we individually need to do to maintain the bond of peace? To seek out reconciliation. What is it that you have to do to reconcile with someone who is uh, angry with you or in conflict with you? Now, I can't promise you that you will reconcile, but so far as it matters to you, what is your part? We have no guarantee that Mark would go with Timothy to see Paul. 
Paul had no assurance of that himself. And I don't know if Mark went. But so far as it mattered to Paul, he wanted to reconcile. Take home, oh, I guess that is the take home point. Observation number three. Paul named names. This is very un-Canadian of Paul. He named names. I want to take a look at two names in particular, Demas and Alexander. Uh, Verse 10. So verse 9 is, come to me soon. And then he's going to tell him why from verses 10 through 14. Uh, Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, in case you don't know much about Demas, I had to look him up as well. Uh, No, there is not much to know about him. But here's a man who was close to Paul, and he deserted him. He outed him by name. Why would he do that? He did that so that Timothy would know Demas is not a man that you can trust. You can't trust him to hang with you in the hard times. When when my life was hanging in the balance in a Roman court, Demas took off. Not not because he was scared, because remember, everyone deserted Paul, but Paul isn't, isn't going to say everyone was in love with this present world. But Demas left, not because he was scared, but because he loved this world more than he loved me. He loved this world more than he loved the gospel. He loved this world more than he loved the church. And so you can't do ministry with a man like that. Second name that that Paul outs is Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Sometimes Paul says, may the Lord not count it against them. And sometimes Paul says, uh, may the Lord... The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, is Paul schizophrenic? No, but but the nature of the offense is different. We don't know what Alexander the coppersmith did. We don't even know if Alexander was a member of the church or if he was uh, a persecutor outside of the church. I'm inclined to think that Alexander was inside the church because that's what Paul's correspondence in First and Second Timothy is all about. And, and Paul is warning Timothy, not that there are dangerous unbelievers out there, but here's a man who should have been with us. He should have been with me, but he did me great harm. And in fact, what we see here is he may have played Judas to Paul in that here was a man who was one of Paul's confidants And whatever harm he did, it may have resulted in Paul's capture, arrest, imprisonment, because that's the broader context of of this verse. What's the take-home point? The point is, sometimes, I'm not saying all of the time, but sometimes, problem people in the church need to be outed by name. We have this idea, and I've been a part of three local churches as a pastor. This is my third. And I know that this is a broad idea in Canada. You never, ever out someone by name if they have sinned against you or the church. You always protect 
the, the one who has done the sinning and you just sort of allow the victim to relive it by protecting the perpetrator. It's not biblical, not always, sometimes. It takes great wisdom to know when someone at the front of the church has to say, be careful of Demas, be careful of Alexander. These two men did me great harm and they'll do you great harm. Stay away. It takes great wisdom to know when to say that. But what I want us to see here is that occasion may arise when a leader in the church such as Paul has to stand up and say, this person's trouble. Keep your distance. Observation number four. Paul strategically dispatched co-laborers. So it seems like everyone abandoned him when he was on trial. Now that he had been found guilty and was sitting in prison and he uh, uh, was found guilty, he knows that execution is coming, it seems that there were some men and women who filtered back in to see him and there was forgiveness because we see that Whereas Paul is quite against Demas for going to Thessalonica, he's not against these other names. And the way I read this, and many other scholars read this, is that Paul, at the end of his life, is making sure that the churches regionally that he has established are well taken care of. And so he dispatches people that he trusts to different locations to make sure that the church continues to grow in those places. So let's take a look at them. He sent Cretans to Galatia. There's no other mention of Cretans in the New Testament, but he sent Cretans to Galatia. He sent Titus to Dalmatia, which means that, and if we were to read the book of Titus, we know that Paul had left Titus in Crete to set up churches there. It seems like mission accomplished in Crete. After that was done, Titus came to Rome, visited his mentor in prison, and Paul said, okay, I want you to go and do the very same thing in Dalmatia. Go set up churches. Appoint elders in every town. Make sure you, you instruct them to teach that which accords with sound doctrine. Make sure they know that it's in keeping with the gospel to devote yourself to good works. That's my thumbnail of the book of Titus. Go to Dalmatia and do the same thing. Tychicus was sent to Ephesus. Presumably, Tychicus was uh, carrying with him the, the letter that we call 2 Timothy. We know a few other things about Tychicus. He had teamed up with Paul after the Ephesian riots in the beginning of Acts 20. He had delivered the letter to the Ephesians. We read that in Ephesians 6.21. And he delivered the letter to the Colossians, Colossians 4.7. Uh, so this is a man that Paul really trusted. Remember, taking a letter is, you don't just outsource that to Canada Post or Pure Later in the ancient world, especially when its contents are the Word of God. And so Tychicus was a man that Paul trusted, and he had sent him to all these places. He was sending him back to Ephesus, at which point he would relieve Timothy there, and Timothy would come to see Paul in Rome. We also read in Titus 3.12 that it was Tychicus who had relieved Titus in Crete. So presumably, round one, Tychicus went down to Crete. Titus went to Rome. Titus was dispatched up to Galatia. Now Tychicus is back. I did that. Now he goes and he relieves Timothy in Ephesus and Timothy presumably comes to Rome to see Paul. 
Erastus remained at Corinth, and we know from the correspondence that Corinth was a, a very difficult church, perhaps more difficult in a lot of ways than uh, Ephesus. They had different problems. If you read uh, through the scriptures, uh, the problem with Ephesus was false teaching and then love. The problem in Corinth was just uh, rampant immorality and, and sin, especially sexual sin. So different problems, different assignments, but Erastus was charged to remain at Corinth and to help set things in order there. Originally, Erastus had been a city treasurer in Rome. He had joined the Roman church. We read that in Romans 16.23. And then Paul sent him with Timothy to Macedonia. We read about that in Acts 19.22. And now he's at Corinth. So this is a man that Paul trusted. He put him into difficult situations. We learn about uh, Trophimus, how he fell ill and stayed in Miletus. He, uh, Trophimus was originally from Ephesus. We read about that in Acts 20, 29. He, he was accompanying Paul when he fell ill in Miletus. That's just a little bit south of Ephesus. It may have been that um, this was as Paul was going up the coast to Troas, where then he may have been arrested and then sent over to Rome. We'll talk a little bit more about Trophimus's illness in one of the observations coming up. And then finally, Paul says, Timothy, come and see me, which we've already talked about. This is a take home of this. Like, what I want you to see, look at Paul's network. And at the end of his life, he's not just saying, well, I hope things go well for you. He's strategically positioning the church to thrive in the next generation. And it's so easy to become insular as a, as a church, to, be, to forget that there's a bigger thing that God is doing. And what I learn, with the take-home point that I see from these verses, is that every local church, including South Shore, is part of a much bigger network of churches and co-laborers for the gospel. We're not alone. And so we never want to be insular. We never want to look in. We want to tend to our own local church, but we want to realize that we're in partnership with other local churches, with other servants of the gospel, which is why we, we want to look outside of ourselves, even in the city of Barrie, and say, who can we partner with? Uh, who are like-minded Christians that we can bless them and they can bless us? And I know we already have youth that go from church to church, so, so some of our youth are going to other youth groups. Uh, we, I know that there are some children in this church that are doing Awana, at Harvest, for example, that's good and it's right to partner with other churches. We're not in competition with one another. We are, we are in this together, shoulder to shoulder, for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. It's another reason that we're a part of the Gospel Coalition Canada. Uh, we believe that we can't just bear witness to the gospel in isolation by ourselves. Now, that was a lot of work to make that point, but I think it's important for you to see this map. What would our map look like? What are the lines that connect South Shore to other local churches? We've got to build those lines. I think we have some of those lines. We've got to do more to build those lines, those partnerships strategically so that we have a role to play within the broader context of what God is doing. Observation number five. This is a quick one. Even near death, Paul wanted books and parchments to read. 
verse 13, he says, Look, when you come to me, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Spurgeon made a big deal about this. He, he did a whole sermon on this verse. And he, he basically said, look how important it is to read. If you're not reading, you're not growing, and you're not useful to God. That's a pretty bad paraphrase of Spur- Spurgeon's sermon. But he says, you've got to be a reader. Leaders are readers, and readers are leaders. And even Paul, who's chained to a Roman prison, expecting to die, he's not done learning. He wants to read more. He wants to refresh himself uh, so that he's useful to others, but also useful to himself. How is Paul going to face his martyrdom? He's going to read his books and parchments. He's going to remind himself, this is what I know to be true. This is what I believe. So there's never a time where we can sort of close the book and say, I think I got it. Until we draw our last breath, let's be reading this book and these collected parchments. You know what's amazing is the parchments were probably the original autographs of much of the Bible. Uh, much of the New Testament. He's, I just want to see those. I, I remember when I first wrote that, and you know they were copied out and sent all over. I want to be in touch with those words again. And he probably was gathering these parchments, which are probably his letters, original copies, so that he could entrust them to the next generation of the church. These words are important, Timothy. I entru- like, how did we get the Bible? It didn't fall from the sky. Uh, Timothy had to go up to Troas to pick up the parchments, take them to Paul, and then Paul had to entrust them to somebody and say, make sure these get around to all the local churches. It's amazing. Next point is similar. Observation number six, Paul was organizing to have the authors of almost three quarters of the New Testament and half of the Gospels together at one time. And and we see that in one verse. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me, go get Mark. Luke is with me, go get Mark. What do we know about Luke? He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Those two together constitute a big chunk of the New Testament. They're very long books. What do we know about Paul? Well, he wrote, uh, now I'm blanking, is it 13 letters? He wrote Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's 13, I, I think. I was counting while I was reading them there. Uh, and then you have Mark, and, and most scholars agree that this is the Mark that wrote the book of Mark. So if Timothy managed to get Mark to Rome, you've got a great gathering of Paul and Timothy and Luke and Mark. Oh, what's the take home? I don't know. I would have loved to be there. That's, just revel in that. Like, use your sanctified imagination to just think about, wow, that would have been amazing. I wonder what they talked about. I, it just is encouraging to me everything that they had been through. And there they were gathered together in a Roman dungeon. And how they encouraged Paul, you know, see this through. And then they probably went over to Peter's cell and said, Peter, you can do this. Weeks later, Peter's crucified upside down. Paul is beheaded. I mean, 
We need to encourage one another, especially when times of difficulty are on the horizon. We need to, endurance is not an isolated event. We need to encourage one another to endure. Observation number seven. We've touched on this in the introduction. It's, it occupies four verses, so it requires a little bit more observation. Paul felt deserted even while the Lord stood by him. Let's take another look at verses uh, 16 and 17. At my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. As I said, some came back, but he stood there all alone. And, And just as Demas was his Judas, you see Paul having very much a similar experience as Christ had as all the disciples fled from him. Perhaps John alone stood at the foot of the cross. May it not be charged against them. You know, there I said, there it is, right? Whereas with Alexander, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Here, those who deserted him, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles that they might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. When Paul says he was saved from the lion's mouth, this might have been a literal salvation from being thrown in with the lions in the Colosseum. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like a very good end to us to be beheaded, but that is a merciful execution in comparison to the games, to being thrown into, to be made to be seen as a spectacle before all these onlookers, and they allow the lions to come in. We know that that was happening to Christians starting about this time. So Paul says, the Lord did not desert me. He saved me from the lion's mouth. I will be poured out as a drink offering, but I will not be a spectacle in the games. And he's rejoicing that God's mercy would permit him to be beheaded. Now where, where are you in comparison to that? Where am I? Oh Lord, may it just be a beheading. It's sobering, right? And if that wasn't enough, the the pain, if you're reading through this letter from beginning to the end, the pain was not so much execution and end of life, but being deserted. What, What pained Paul was not that he had to give up his life in this gruesome way, but that brothers and sisters deserted him in his time of need. Now that's instructive for us. Observation number eight. Expecting to die, Paul had confidence that even death could not separate him from Christ. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Oh, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
When we pray for deliverance, what do we think of? Heal me of this illness. Rescue me from this circumstance. That's, that's not what Paul had in mind. Having acknowledged that, that he was lonely in the church. He says, but the Lord stood by me. And not only did the Lord stand by me, not only was the Lord merciful to me so that my end will not be at the mouth of a lion, but I know that he will rescue me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so for Paul, being rescued was death itself. Death was the means through which Jesus would rescue him. Finally, all these evil deeds will be over. No more shipwrecks. No more stonings. No more lashings. No more being let down by the church. God will rescue me through death. And I will be with him. Oh, glory to God. We're reminded in Philippians, I don't know what I want more. Whether I want to die to be with Christ, that would be better for me. If I have my choice, that's what I want. Or that I would get out of prison, that would be better for you. It's not what I really want. But since I am a slave of Christ, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get out of prison alive so that I can be let down by you. Right? You know, keeping everything in perspective is so crucial. And if you're not and if I'm not longing for death, not to hasten it, because that may not be beneficial to our families, it may not be beneficial to the church, it may not be beneficial to all those opportunities to witness to a lost and dying world, but all that aside, if our desire is not to just get it over with, we haven't fully grasped the gospel. We are in danger of being like Demas in love with this present world. And let's just admit it, we are in love with this present world. How, how many of us long for the return of Christ right now? I would rejoice if I didn't have the opportunity to finish this sermon. Catch me up to heaven, oh God. Strike me dead with a heart attack. But it's not beneficial to my family unless that's the return of Christ. It's probably, I don't want to evaluate this too definitively, but it's probably not beneficial to you if I fall down here. But that ought to be our desire. I'm even tired of my own sin nature. Are you? We have a lot of work to do to dig deep into the gospel, don't we? Observation number nine. And this is a repeat, and it bears repeating. For Paul, as much as ministry was about the truth, and it was, Paul died for the truth. As much as it was about the truth, it was about relationships. For Paul, ministry was rooted in relationships. And we see that. Uh, these were his last words. I mean, this book is his last words. These are the last words of his last words. 
greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. I won't get into their biographies. There's much about these, these three individuals in the scriptures. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. We've talked about that already. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you. Uh, so does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. And we reflect back on this letter and we remember that this letter is all about Timothy needing to be strengthened and encouraged to, to stand for the truth. But do it knowing you have people who've got your back. So we also must forge deep relationships and do everything we can to protect them. Observation number 10. I want to, this is an aside. It kind of doesn't fit as neatly as the other 10. So, you know, we could have made this a top 10 list and then given you a bonus observation. This is the bonus observation. It's a word about healing. I mean, there's great debates in the church is there a gift of healing? Is it still operable or not operable? Well, let's go back to the original or to the first generation of the church when no one really contests that the gift of healing was operable. So we can all agree that there was the gift of healing at the time that this was written. And what I want us to notice, and this is the observation, that even ministers of the gospel get seriously sick. In an, in an era where no one disputes that the gift of healing was at work. So take a look at uh, verse 20, the second half. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Now, he didn't have a cold. He, he didn't have the flu. He was, he was deathly ill so that he could not travel anymore. So Paul just said, well, I've got to keep going. You stay here. Now, do you suppose that Paul prayed for him before he just sort of left him in Miletus? Yeah. Had Paul ever healed anyone before? Yes. What does it tell us about the gift of healing? It, it says that the gift of healing, like all of the gifts, it doesn't matter which gift it is, cannot be harnessed. These are not superpowers that God gives us and then we somehow take an ownership of them and just, just like, oh, I don't know my superheroes very well, but just like uh, Spider-Man can throw a web when he wants to or Superman can fly when he wants to, so I'm going to heal you when I want to. That's not the way the gifts work. So whether or not there is a gift of healing today, I'm not getting into that debate right now, uh, at the time when the gift of healing was clearly evidenced in the life of the church, the Apostle Paul was unable to bring health and healing to a co-laborer for the gospel. That's interesting. And that verse alone just forces us to realign our expectations on the gifts. It's a gift meaning that God is the one in control. And, and when we say that we can control any gift, the gift of teaching, the gift of healing, the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of administration, that, that's a neat gift. Um, before we can say, well, these are in our control, we have to remember that, no, they're in God's control. And so do we pray for healing? Yeah, we do. Will God heal? Maybe, maybe not. It's, 
up to his sovereign plan for the life of any given person at that time. And that's not new post-apostolic age. These are not superpowers. They're gifts. So that's an aside, but it's here, and I thought it was worth touching on. Because, unf- sorry, tragedy. I want uh, micro-observation within this macro-observation. Here's the tragedy. Churches splinter over the gift of healing. Like, have you read your Bible and all the desire to be united? Get together. Focus on what you have in common. Remember the Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one hope, one God and Father, one church. I think we better rip apart because we disagree about this, that, or the other thing, including healing. Churches have, have gone through horrible wars over this one issue. And in the apostolic age, the apostle Paul couldn't heal his co-laborer Miletus. Side over. Final observation. Ministry and life in the church is impossible without the love and grace of the Lord. We all come to faith knowing that. But somewhere on our journey, every one of us, myself included, has amnesia with regard to the centrality of grace. Whatever you are going through relationally, could grace help? You know, it shouldn't surprise us when our relationships are strained. We're, we are redeemed, regenerate saints, holy from the heart, or as Paul says, obedient from the heart. But we have this lingering, pesky sin nature, don't we? So it shouldn't surprise us when we are in conflict. What should surprise us is prolonged periods of time when we're not in conflict. That's the miracle. So when conflict comes and relationships are strained in your home, in your family, in your marriage, between you and your children, with close friends, in the church, don't be surprised. But go back to basics. The grace of God. The Lord be with your spirit, Paul says. Grace be with you. Timothy, you are doing the impossible in Ephesus. You need grace. I will disappoint you. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your children will disappoint you. Your friends will disappoint you. Uh, Every one of us and this is a, a, a chart I, c- I would hate to draw, but every one of us will sin against every other one of us in some capacity at some time if we journey for any amount of time together in the church. Let's get over it. Doesn't mean we paper it over. That's not what I mean by get over it, but apply grace. 
humble ourselves. Admit fault. Seek reconciliation. And stay together. You know, I love Martin Luther, but ever since he nailed those 95 theses to the door, there's been uh, no end to so-called Martin Luther's. You know, the, the big curse of the Protestant church is we all want to be our own Martin Luther. We, we all want to just make the division. I'm going to stand my ground and nobody's going to make me change. Like this, it's ridiculous. It goes against the gospel. And to our shame as Protestants, there are some 20,000 or 100,000, I don't even know, denominations. And, and then within the Baptist fold of the church, how many different kinds of Baptists are there? And then how, how, many, uh, how many people leave this church and that church because this happened and that? Of course you got hurt in your local church. Of course you did. And you will get hurt again. So, don't leave. Fight the good fight of the faith. Stick it out. Now, there are times to transition from one church to another. And there's a right way to do it. And the right way to do it, without getting into all the specifics, is the elders are involved in both churches. So, I don't want to make too big a point about transferring from one local church to another, but do it right. What can we make of all this? Is there any instruction that we can glean without bending the text too far? I think so. All of these points, except maybe the one about healing, work together to give us this instruction. It's the 22nd instruction to the church. Stand together and work together in the grace of the Lord. Stand together shoulder to shoulder. Work together. And don't for a moment think that you can do this without the grace of the Lord. Take just to conclude our time, a couple of comments on, on this. First, stand together, then a couple of comments on work together, and then a couple of comments on in the grace of the Lord. Stand together. Demas and Alexander did not stand with Paul when it mattered most, they did him harm. One was in love with this present age or this present world, the other probably set him up for arrest and imprisonment and execution. They did not endure until the end. They did not stand with the Apostle Paul. And they will, if they have not already, given an account for that to the Lord. When we do not stand together, we will have to answer for it. Make no mistake. If we do not stand together, we will have to answer to the Lord why we did not. Now, now, no one stood with Paul at his defense, but it seems like many people came back. Uh, life is messy. Grace required. Ministry is relational, both with good and evil consequences. You know, you see that beautiful relationship between Paul and Timothy. Uh, would that we all have that 
one or two special relationships like that. We see Paul and Mark. You know, it didn't go well for a season. There was reconciliation. May we all have relationships like that. At least they sought reconciliation. Then, as I said, there's those that never are reconciled, Paul and Demas, Paul and Alexander. Who should we blame for those fallings out? Well, Scripture, the Word of God would say, Demas was at fault and Alexander was at fault and Paul was not. And this is also is un-Canadian. Sometimes we don't have to share the blame when a relationship crumbles. Sometimes someone is at fault and someone is not at fault. But so far as it depends on us, let us stand together and seek peace and the preservation of peace. We will never achieve anything of eternal significance if we do not stand together shoulder to shoulder for the sake of the gospel. Never think, even for a moment, that we can desert one another and do great harm to one another and still consider ourselves useful to the Lord for the sake of the gospel. This is a mistake that's being made in the evangelical church in Canada every week, every day. I can just hurt my brother in the local church and go down the road to another one and start over. False. False. If you don't stand together at one local church, you're not useful to the Lord at the next local church. And, and let me just say this. There may be some of us here that have to go back into their life one year, five years, ten years, 20 years and seek out moments or opportunities for reconciliation. I had to do that, by the way. I did not leave the first church that I was a pastor at uh, the right way. It was subtle. It looked like the right way. But since that time, I have had to go back to the senior pastor of that church and seek his forgiveness. And I was at a memorial service last weekend where I saw him and we embraced. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you that story to say, yay, Adam, like, good job. No, it's to say, I own this on myself. And so you may have to go back two or three or four churches and find somebody that you wronged and make it right. And you know, I, you come to the elders here and say, this is what we're doing, this is what we want to do. Hey, we will cheer you on, we'll help you with that, we'll do whatever it, we need to do to be a support to you, to make it right. You can't go back and undo it, but you can seek forgiveness. And then you'll be useful here for the work of the gospel. Last comment on standing together. We must, like the 18 plus names listed here, stand together. It's the only hope that we have in making any difference in the world. Work together. The work of the gospel cannot be achieved in isolation. There is no such thing as a freelance Christian. A and I made this point a few weeks ago. There's no such thing as the universal church outside of the local church. It's like saying, I play for the NHL. Oh, that's great. What team do you play for? No, 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 I play for Gary Bettman. I don't actually play on a team. That's what freelance Christians are like. I play for Jesus. Oh, great, what team are you on? Well, no, 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 I'm not actually on a team. That's, that's just not how it works. You gotta be in a local church, 
And in the local church, we must work together. Our efforts are necessarily a part of a group effort. Like the names mentioned in today's text, each of us has an assignment to fulfill. So the goal is, what is your assignment? What is it that the Lord would have you to do? And what is the context within which the Lord wants you to do that thing? If you are a part of this church, the immediate context for the assignment that the Lord has given you is this church. So we need to work together in this local church first and foremost. And then, once each of us is fulfilling our particular unique assignments within this church, then as a group we can be useful to other local churches. Third, we stand together and we work together in the grace of the Lord. So I, with Paul, say to us, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's stand together. Now that we are standing, see this as a symbolic act of what we desire to do. It's not going to be easy, but shoulder to shoulder, let's stand together. And standing, let's work together. And let us realize that we need to do this in the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace. I thank you for 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. These letters have changed us as a church. And now we pray for your mercy and your grace to empower us by your Spirit to do the things that we have learned you want us to do. Please help us to make right relationships that need to be righted. Help us to humble ourselves and to look back into our deep past if we need to, uh, to reconcile and to make right uh, past church hurts so we can be useful to you here in this time. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.